Well, like Benji said, we hit, uh, we jumped back into the gospel of Matthew. We're in the home stretch between now and Easter in this study of Matthew's gospel. Last week, Benji did a great job taking us through the first uh, 12 verses of Matthew uh, 19, where we hit that uh, passage that deals with divorce. Apparently, somebody had been reading ahead last week and caught Benji afterwards, found out that I was teaching today and said, hey, what gives? Like, how'd you get the short straw? You had to teach on this thorny issue of divorce. And next week, Mike gets to teach on be nice to children and don't be greedy. Like, that seems like a (laughs) softball kind of text there. Um, it's just how the way things work. Um, actually, uh, when I heard that, I thought, oh man, I'm afraid that this text that we're going to hit today may actually be more scandalous. It may hit closer to home for a lot of us. You see, I don't think it's topics like divorce or abortion or sexuality or you fill in the blank that in themselves are problematic, but rather the gospel itself There's something scandalous about it for those of us who have proud hearts, for those who want to hang on to control of their lives, people like me who who want to think of ourselves as good people, who want to earn God's approval. And the gospel is, is hard news before it's good news to those of us who think like that. The two stories that we're going to look at today, the children being brought to Jesus and, and the encounter with the rich young man, well, they, they make one point in contrasting ways, serving to humble our pride and to proclaim, I hope you hear this before you leave today, good news for those who of us who hear Jesus' invitation to come to him. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to, if you're able, would you stand? I know you just sat down, but we're going to stand to honor the reading of God's word. We're picking up the story in Matthew 9, 19, 13. Listen to what God's word says to us. Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and he went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The man said, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The man, when he heard this, went away sorrowful for he had great possessions And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? 
And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat and keep your Bibles open. Well, first thing I want to point out before just diving into uh, the text is that this, there's a, oops, I got to turn this on here. There are a few terms that that we see come up again and again in this text. Uh, The first is the kingdom of heaven. Did you notice that? It's in uh, verse uh, 14 and then it reoccurs down in verse 23 and again in verse 24. And then we see also the term salvation comes up in uh, verse 25. Who can be saved? Who can find salvation? And then lastly, eternal life frames the discussion of the rich young man. He says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life in verse 16? And then down at the end in verse 29, Jesus says, those who leave all these things will find a hundredfold and eternal life. These, these, word, these different words are used uh, to make this, uh, elucidate the same reality. They're all driving at the same thing. Now, I, can, I might illustrate this by saying after the service today, I'm going to go home and watch the 49ers continue their winning streak, okay? They, they, they're going to extend their dominance. Don't shake your head at me, Dave. Come on. They're going to take one more step towards an eventual Super Bowl championship, okay? So when I talk about dominance, no booing, please. That's, we don't do that in church here. But if uh, there was somebody over here in the first service with an Eagles jersey on, she was just giving me darts like that. Anyway, uh, in that uh, illustration I'm using, dominance, extending a winning streak, pursuing a championship, there's all different words to use to describe the same thing that they are after. Here, these ideas, this, the, uh, entering the kingdom of heaven, finding eternal life, gaining salvation, again, they're all ways of pointing towards the same reality. And it's not about what, uh, it's not about what it takes to go to heaven when you die. So when you read these terms, Jesus is not just saying, here's what you have to do to go to heaven someday. Rather, There is a future aspect to all of these things, but Jesus is trying to get across how to inherit a new kind of life right now with God at the center, under God's rule, a new form of life, an abundance of life that all of us want. So with that in mind, let's let's jump in and look at uh, this passage. Whoops, we don't want to get there yet. Uh, Verse 13, the children are brought to Jesus. I love picturing Jesus as just somebody with his arms outstretched and kids just running into his arms. Jesus! But do you notice the sad reaction, the ironic reaction of his disciples? I mean, the very people who you would think would should be helping others come to Jesus here are behaving more like bouncers at a nightclub. Like, no, I'm sorry, you can't come in. <laughs> What's up with that? Well, Jesus will have none of it. In Mark's account, Jesus is described as indignant. He's ticked off. 
He, he, here we find in Matthew uh, simply that Jesus overrules his disciples and instructs the children to be allowed access to him. And the question is, why? Why is it so important? Is he just a kid person? Or is there something even more important here at stake that he wants to make sure people understand? Look at verse 14. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Why? For or because to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we read that to such as these children belong the kingdom of heaven, we need to ask, what is it about these kids that that illustrates uh, why the kingdom of heaven belongs to them? There's something about them that shows what kind of people can belong to this king's kingdom. And it might be any number of things. Like, let's just think about kids for a minute. Kids are cute, aren't they? But Jesus is clearly not saying, to such cute people belong the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I would be disqualified right away. So that's good that he's not saying that. Kids are rather unpredictable, are they not? Uh, last week, I got to be a part of uh, dedicating children up here. I love dedicating children. But I know something. Whenever I am up here dedicating children, you all are rooting for something to go sideways. <laughs> I know it. You love it when the kids get unruly or squirrely, and you're just thinking, okay, how's the pastor going to handle this? What's going to go on? It's a sick form of entertainment. Stop it. Okay. <laughs> Jesus is not saying to such unpredictable people belong the kingdom of heaven. What is it about the children? I want to suggest that it is not the children's gentleness. And it is certainly not their innocence or purity or virtue. And if you think that, there's probably some parents of toddlers in this room who would invite you to come to their house and babysit their kids. It's not that kids are virtuous and that's why they belong in in God's kingdom. The disciples want to send the kids away because the kids, well, they have nothing to contribute to the cause. They have no wealth, no status, no influence, no importance in that culture. They have nothing. But friends, that is precisely the point to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Kids are an example of of vulnerability and dependence. And Jesus wants us to see that to receive the kingdom requires utter dependence on God. This was his point in the previous chapter in Matthew 18, when we looked at that in the fall. Uh, Jesus had a child brought to him and said, uh, if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to become humble like this child. You need to acknowledge that you are dependent. You have nothing to offer. This is the point of uh, that verse in, in the song Rock of Ages that I love so much. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. And Jesus is saying to such people who know they have nothing, who are naked, who need grace, who need help, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. For people who know that they need to be fed and clothed and protected and cared for, they are invited to receive just that under God's kind and just rule. Well, at this point, 
in verse 16, just as Jesus is blessing the kids, we find a, a new character enters the scene, this, this rich young man. And he asks a question of significance. Does he not look at it again? He says, teacher, what, must I do, what good deed or good thing must I do to have eternal life? Now, I don't know about you, but this man was on to something. He recognizes that which is truly important eternal life. Now, when he asks, how do I have eternal life? He's not just asking, how can I have a life that just goes on and on and on and on? Nobody wants that. Just a monotonous, everlasting, never ending life. What he's asking is how do I have eternal life, abundant life, life that is filled with security and joy and peace and meaning and purpose. Now that's a question that burns in our hearts. Is it not? And he wants to know, how do I get it? What must I do? Have you ever wondered that? What does God expect of me in order to give me that kind of life? It's a very practical question. It's the kind of question that people like us who live in a success-oriented, task-driven culture like. And he asks this question, and Jesus' answer shatters the polite conversation and it shatters this man's presuppositions about himself and about what is good. Look at it in verse 17. He said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Let's just pause there for a moment. There's only one who is good. The implication is it's not you (laughs) in case you missed that. Can I ask you a personal question? Do you think of yourself as a good person? Are you a good person? How do you measure that if you think you are a good person? In 2015, uh, the Barna Company did a, a survey related to how Americans understand truth and morality. And they asked a number of, uh, asked a number of uh, people to respond to certain statements and agree or disagree. And this is what they found. This is kind of a hard chart to, to work out, but I'll give you, show you here. They asked some of the questions over here or statements like, the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. And out of all those surveyed, all the U.S. adults who were surveyed, 91% agreed with that. And 76% of practicing Christians agreed with that. You just go down the list. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. And 86% of Americans uh, uh, surveyed agreed. 72% of practicing Christians agreed with that. And then this is the last one I'll point out. The highest goal of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. And 84% of respondents agreed with that. And 67, two-thirds of Christians agreed with that response. Well, what are we to make of this? David Kinnaman, who is the president of, of Barna, he, he, he says that this shows us that the morality of self-fulfillment has all but replaced the historic Christian moral code. He goes on saying, there's a tremendous amount of individualism in today's society, and that's reflected in the church, too. Millions of Christians have grafted New Age dogma onto their spiritual person, And when we peel back the layers, we find that many Christians are using the way of Jesus to pursue the way of self. 
While we wring our hands about secularism spreading through our culture, a majority of church-going Christians have embraced a corrupt, me-centered theology. Do you see what he's getting at? It's much easier to think of yourself as a good person if you're measuring it by things like this. Like if, if you are indeed pursuing enjoyment and being fulfilled and looking within rather than looking at God's commands. Now, this man who comes to Jesus, this young man, comes with a confidence that eternal life is within his grasp. It's well within his own power to attain. But Jesus begins chipping away at this assumption. He points him to the commandments. You'll notice in at the end of verse 17, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And so the man said, well, which ones? And Jesus points out the one about murder and stealing and adultery and loving your neighbor as yourself. And, uh, and we need to ask, why does Jesus do that? Why does he point him to the law at this point, the law of God found in the scriptures? Well, God's commandments in the word have multiple functions. They're multiple use. Uh, The reformers talked about three purposes of the law. They're meant to guide us in understanding what God thinks of as good. They're meant to restrain people from doing evil. But there's a foundational purpose of the law, and that is uh, um, showing us what is in ourselves. Augustine, the great church leader, he put it like this. The law bids us. As we try to fulfill the law's requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it, to know how to ask the help of grace. In other words, as we look at the law and we strive towards it, we realize, I'm tired, I can't do it. And we look for help at that point. Calvin spoke about the law of God acting as a kind of mirror. As we look in it, we not only see God's righteousness, but we see our own stained face reflected back again. So we see our own faults and our need for help. This is what Paul was getting at in Romans 3.20. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Jesus points this man to the, the law of God, but this young man seems impervious to conviction he says, I've, I've done it all. I'm pretty good, right? Looking for commendation. And to such a person, more drastic measures are needed. And so Jesus puts the matter in a way he will be sure to get. Look at verse 21 and notice the five rapid verbs here. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Go, Sell, give, come, follow. Now, all of these are getting him ready to, to do the most important thing, come and follow. But ver, as verse 22 shows, this, his wealth had such a tight grip on his heart, he cannot bear to let it go. Look at it. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. His, his, his hands were clenched so tightly on the things he didn't want to let go of. He just walked away sadly. And Jesus understands this is exactly the point. To receive grace from God, we need to unclench our fists and open our hands. We need to 
have empty hands to receive what God wants for us. I used this illustration a few years ago, but it's worth repeating. And in parts of the developing world where, where monkeys are a nuisance in their villages and towns, they have a, a method of trapping monkeys that is, uh, doesn't require cages. And what they'll do is they'll just take a box or a, a coconut or a hollowed out gourd and they'll drill a little hole into it and fix it to a tree. And the hole is just big enough for a monkey to fit its, its hand through. And inside, they'll put some fruit or nuts or something the monkeys will really like. And as the monkey comes, he'll be able to slip his hand into the hole and grab that treasure inside. But the hole is too small for a fist to get out of the hole. Now, you'd think the monkey would, would get the point and would just let go of that little treat inside and be free. But even when he sees somebody coming with a bag to wrap him up, trap him, he won't let go of that which is in his hand. And he'll lose his freedom because he doesn't want to let go of the treasure. And we hear that and we think, what a stupid monkey. <laughs> I mean, just let go. But are we all that different? I think this, this text here is showing us that the human heart, there's something in us that's like that. We don't want to let go to receive what God wants to give us, freedom from our, from our selfishness and pride. Now, over and over again, the scriptures warn us about the insidious power that money and possessions can have on us. But we, who are among the wealthiest people to ever walk the face of this planet, well, we often feel that we are immune to God's strict warnings about materialism. We convince ourselves that, that we're not being indulgent or disobedient. Rather, we're just being responsible and prudent, right? I mean, after all, we do live in Santa Barbara area. It's, just, it's hard to make it in this town. The rents and the mortgages are through the roof. We've got to save money for college or pay off student debt. We've, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things that we need to, to deal with. We've got to put money away for retirement so that our kids don't have to take care of us. Now, all those things may be true, but just put things in perspective. Think about this for a moment. According to the, a group called the Nonprofit Source, nationwide, Christians today give about 2.5% of their income away to charity. For comparison, during the Great Depression of the 1930s, probably the low, one of the lowest points in terms of uh, poverty in, in America, people gave away 3.3% of their income. So as wealth has accelerated in our culture over time, our generosity has actually dipped. What does that say about the human heart? God here is calling this rich man, and he's calling you, and he's calling me, to be generous and self-sacrificial, not just for the sake of other people who need the resources, but for our own sake, because it's damaging to our own heart, our own soul. Now, at this point, I could finish up the next you know, five minutes or so with just a, a hard-hitting sermon on giving. Give more. We need more of your funds. Blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to do that. I'm hoping the Holy Spirit, you know, God doesn't need your money. This church could use it, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but the point is bigger than this. 
It's not just about money. It is about money, but it's more than that. Verses 23 to 26, I want us to see two important truths that get to the heart of what this passage is all about. And it goes way beyond be nice to kids and don't be greedy. Let's look at it. Verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Two really important truths I want you to hear this morning. One is this, salvation eternal life, entering the kingdom of God, living under God's rule. These are all humanly impossible. You cannot do enough to get these. We are not good enough. This, this is only to be received with empty hands as a work of grace from God. It is not something we earn. Even if you were to give all of your wealth away, it would not be enough. Well, the second is this, that the only way to receive grace is to surrender, is to open your hands, is to die, let something die in yourself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor during World War II, probably uh, most known uh, for his fact that he died in, in a prison camp by the hands of the Nazis. He was a resistor of the Nazis. He was a plot to, uh, part of a plot to kill Hitler. Uh, he, he wrote a book, most famously he's known for, called The Cost of Discipleship. And I think he's worth uh, quoting at, at length today. I want you to hear this section. In The Cost of Discipleship, uh, Bonhoeffer reflects on the Gospel of Matthew, and particularly in this section that I'm going to read to you, he's, he's reflecting on our passage today on the rich young man. Listen to what he says. It says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus' summons to the rich young man was calling him to die because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with our affections and lusts. But we do not want to die. And therefore, Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily both our death as well as our life. <clears throat> the call to discipleship, the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ means both death and life. <clears throat> well, I think he's right. I think I need to clear my throat one moment here. What Bonhoeffer put so powerfully, uh, C.S. Lewis put beautifully and imaginatively into his stories of Narnia. 
And I want you to hear a little bit um, from the voyage of the Dawn Treader. Have you read it recently? It begins with a wonderful sentence introducing a new character. The first sentence in the book is simply this. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) I love that. Lewis goes on to describe uh, Eustace's family as very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers. In other words, he comes from kind of pious, religious, good people. But we quickly learn that this is just a veneer. For Eustace, if you remember, well, he, he was a complainer. He was hard to get along with, and he was utterly selfish. And at one point in the story, Eustace, being the troublesome boy that he is, wants to get away from his companions, and he wanders off, and he finds that he has been transformed during his sleep into a dragon. Do you remember that? Lewis tells us that it was because he fell asleep on a dragon's treasure hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart. It's not so much that he became a dragon, he outwardly became what he already was inwardly. But it's at this point that Eustace begins to see himself as he truly is. Lewis writes, he began to wonder if he himself had been such a nice person as he always supposed. And Eustace begins to weep over himself. And that's when the great lion, Aslan, the Christ character, shows up. And he commands Eustace, follow me. And so Eustace does. He follows him and he's led to a a well where he is to undergo a, a transformation, a baptism of sorts. But first, Aslan tells him, you must undress. Well, Eustace looks at himself and he's a dragon now. So he has no clothes on, but he's got this scaly, thick skin. And so he says, well, I guess I need to take off off the scales. And so he takes his dragon claws and he starts scratching himself and he peels all the dragon skin off him and he steps out of it and he thinks, okay, now I can get into the water. And he looks down only to notice a shiny, new, fresh set of scale, scaly skin is there. And so he tries it again. He starts scratching himself and peels off another layer of the dragon skin and steps out. Three times he does this until he, he realizes it just keeps coming back. He's, it's impossible to get rid of this. Well, it's at this point where finally Aslan himself offers to do it for him. And I've got to read it to you in, in Lewis's own words. Aslan says, you will have to let me undress you. Eustace thought, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab on some sore place, it it hurts like bilio, but it's just so fun to see it coming off. Well, come on. He, He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only that hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker, and darker and knobbly looking than the others had been. 
And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from me. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. This is what Matthew 19 is all about. It's about the impossibility of fixing ourselves, no matter how hard we try to just deal with our own sin. It just doesn't work. It keeps reappearing. But it's about the person of Jesus who in his great power and his great love is willing to do what might feel painful at first to us, but that which we really need to get rid of all the ugliness that exists inside our hearts and peel us back and make us what we were always intended to be, to be the people who image God, who love like God loves, who show his kindness and his justice to those. We can't do that, but with God, Jesus says, all things are possible. This is the call to each of us in this passage, to surrender, to come and die to surrender ourselves to the sometimes painful but always profitable path of discipleship. But the end of the account reminds us that we can never outgive God. We look at it again. Peter says, what will we get? We've left everything. And Jesus says, oh, you'll get plenty. You'll get authority to rule with me. And everyone who has given Houses or brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold in this life and will inherit eternal life. Friends, this is the good news. You can never outgive God. If you relinquish your life to him, you will receive a life that is far better in return. Not filled with more of the world's treasures, but the thing that we really want deep down in our hearts a life filled with security and joy and purpose. That's what Jesus is offering. Well, I'm done. I want to give us just a moment of quiet before we come to the Lord's table. But I want you to ask in this moment of quiet, Lord, Holy Spirit, what what are you calling me to let go of? What do you want me to die to in order that I might receive the life that you have for me? My guess is that every person in this room has some idea of something that would be painful to die to, but you know he is calling you to it. And I want to ask, do you have courage to say, Lord, help me. Help me to die to myself that I might receive you. So let's be silent. Lie on your back, as it were, figuratively, and say, Lord, have your way in me, and then I'll bring us to the Lord's Supper. Oh Lord, give us faith. Give us faith to believe that you are good. Give us courage to release that thing that we want so desperately to hold on to that we can't imagine giving up. 
whether it's our possessions or our resentments, our own plans for our life, Lord, we open ourselves to you and say thank you for being good. Thank you for being worth it. Lord, strengthen us today to be your disciples so that we might have the life that is truly life. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to come to the table and worship. This table is good news because it reminds us through these elements, this bread and wine, that, that Jesus did what he asked us to do first. He not only became like a child, he became, God became a child. And he grew up to die physically, painfully for us. The hard news, I think you've heard this morning, is that we're more flawed than we like to admit. But the good news is we are more loved than you can ever imagine. And God gave himself for us that we might be reconciled to him, might be forgiven of our sins, and we might share in his kind of life. So if you know that, if you have faith in this Christ, come joyfully and receive these elements. Prayer teams are going to be available if you'd like them to pray for you, for strength, courage to release these things to God. Please come pray with them. But let's worship God together.